This episode is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers clients earn interest of up to 3.3% on the idle cash in their brokerage accounts? That's just one of the many reasons clients use Interactive Brokers to trade stocks, options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, cryptos, and more. Visit ibkr.com slash interest rates to learn more. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Well, CPI comes out better than expected, and markets cheer. Powell is, well, kind of confusing. Heading into the end of the year, everyone is calling for a recession. Let's discuss and some year-end planning tips. All this and much more on episode number 795 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome to the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Andrew Horowitz is my name. I'm not sure who you are because you're out there and you got uh, me in your ears listening. But thank you for joining me this week and every week on the longest running financial podcast that is out there. And until we stop this, which I don't know when that's going to be, if ever, we're going to retain that title. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Listen, we're coming up on Christmas and Hanukkah and the new year, and all sorts of other holidays right around the corner. I mean, we're talking about down the, the last stretch of the year. Yes, already. We know that. We say that every single time I say it. I'm like, oh, my God, this year passed so fast. Wow. Yeah, I said that before. I sound like an idiot. But it is true. It's moving fast. And there's a lot of things that happened this year and probably towards the end of this year and then into next year that we need to be aware of. But one of the things that I'm really concerned about right now and something we need to discuss and there's some reasons for it is the end of the year, the potential for additional volatility, maybe some downside pressure because of one specific reason. And really, it revolves around tax selling. And what we've seen this year with all of the massive drawdowns and so many names out there is that there may be a good reason, a very good reason to stop and think about, well, maybe this is as good as it's going to get for a little while in this name, A, B, or C stock, and I'll sell it. I'll take the tax loss on it because we're not talking about a question of it goes up 10%. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to get all my money back. I'm talking about stocks that are down 30 40 50% in the last year. Maybe people that are sitting on significant losses there can offset some of their gains that they have as well, utilizing that to work on their tax planning strategy for 2022. And therefore, what they're going to do is sell that. Therefore, could be continuing pressure. Now, if that does come to fruition, this thesis about this end-of-year pressure that continues, lots of losses being offset, and again, particularly this time of year, I think that maybe that sets us up for an interesting possibility into 2023 in particular, the first month of 2023. 
something we call the January effect. You've heard about it before, and it's oftentimes associated with small caps. That's true, but it is generally defined as this. It's a tendency for increases in stock prices during the beginning of the year, particularly in the month of January. It could be more than just January, but this 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 prevailing theory that if there are all these selling pressures due to tax loss harvesting happening towards the end of the year, there is the potential for it to pick up substantially because people want to buy those stocks back after the wash sale rules are over sometime in the beginning of the new year. So the cause behind the January effect is attributable to this tax loss harvesting consumer sentiment, year-end bonuses, raising year-end reporting performance, and all sorts of other things. So I think it's important to understand that there's a lot more to play going on right now than just simply what Jay Powell says or simply what the economics are. One company is giving us a concern over here or over there. Maybe what's happening in Russia or in China. There's a there's some technical issues over the next few weeks that we need to be aware of. Don't let that spook you out. I'm not saying don't sell. I'm not saying don't buy. Don't let that get you scared and make improper and, and might I say, stupid decisions. I don't want you caught up in that loop of making poor decisions this time of year because of the technical issues that are going on. Now, mind you, got to talk about 2023 as well, right? 2023, there is the potential for some softening. Listen, everybody and their brother are talking about how 2023 is going to be a recession year. And the first half of the year is going to be really a problematic. But then we're setting ourselves up for the next half of the year, the second half of the year, as much better as the comparisons get a lot easier from an inflationary standpoint, from GDP standpoint. And things are going to resolve a little bit more because, you know, a lot of the pressures that we saw with the Fed pressing up rates for the whole entirety of 2022 and their rhetoric and they're talking about, you know, raising and not stopping and inflation, that's all going to dissipate. And that's, again, technically because it generally has to unless things get really screwy. And with that in mind, pretty much there's a chorus in unison of analysts that are talking about how we're going to have a much better year moving forward. I have some numbers from FactSet that we're going to talk about as well today, but let's hold off on that for a moment. Because I want to turn to what happened this week and and talk about some of the, the wonkiness of, of what we're seeing in the markets right now. And in particular, I want to focus just on Tuesday. There was just, it just seemed a lot of things happened this week. Clearly, when, you know, Powell um, and, and the FOMC rate decision, et cetera. But the CPI number on Tuesday was pretty impressive. The report that came out at 8 30 in the morning, expected by everyone, expected to possibly be right on, maybe a little bit soft because we saw that in the PPI the week before. And it did, in fact, come out better than expected, just like the PPI did. But what happened? I'm going to tell you the punchline. I think that's the important thing to look at right now. Then backtrack on the reality of what was inside that CPI report. Since we're all focusing on this like nonstop, since you can't get a sentence in anywhere on NBC, on Bloomberg, on Fox Business News without talking about inflation or the Fed. I mean, there's nothing else to really talk about, it seems, anymore. I think we need to discuss what happened and get down to the real numbers about what's going on here. So on the print, on the 8.30 release of the CPI number, which came out better than expected, 
by a bit. Pre-market, 8.30 in the morning, Dow Jones Industrial Average Futures rocketed higher by 950 points. I mean, it was I, I, it was a train leaving the station, I guess. Everybody wanted to get on board. Doo, doo, get on board. I mean, we're leaving. I mean, you better buy now, right? Because if you don't, you're never going to have this opportunity again. Wow. Amazing. NASDAQ was up 5%. 5%. In the pre-markets, it was unbelievable. Now, that all faded pretty quickly as soon as the market opened and cooler heads prevailed. But what happened was pretty outstanding. Pretty absurd. What are they thinking? Now, I can tell you, technically, when this number came out, a lot of people said, you know what? It's not what I thought the number was going to be. I thought it was going to be hot. Let's take our money off the table. And there were shorts going on. They had to close their positions. It's thin in the pre-market numbers, in the, in the pre-market hours. Therefore, what happened was they had to quickly make a decision and they just bought. So in other words, closing positions on the short, they cover the shorts by buying securities. But that was amazing. 950 points. I mean, clearly people were offside, right? The problem is, unfortunately, everybody's too focused on CPI and the Fed. They should be looking more at the totality of what is going on, not only in the economy, but in corporate America. Because earnings are probably one of the more important issues that we look at. And I think it makes sense. Because really, all this boils down to the, everything that everybody's looking at about the economy, what the Fed's going to do, the rates and inflation, it all boils down to this. What's going to happen with earnings? Even if you want to consider, you know, all of this and really focus in for whatever reason, because you're being nudged to do so by the media on the Fed, you still need to have earnings and multiples in your discussion and in your research. And on that subject, let's talk about, I mentioned FactSet. I have something I want to share with you that um, I just pulled this week's fact set. And uh, here's some of the key metrics I thought were really important. Number one, earnings growth. For quarter four 2020, the estimated earnings decline for the S&P 500 is 2.5%. Decline of 2.5%. And actually, if 2.5% is the actual decline for the quarter, it'll mark the first time the index has reported a year-over-year -year earnings decline since quarter three of 2020 when it was down 5.7%. Now, when it comes to revisions, earnings revisions companies looking at what's happening on September 30th, estimated earnings growth for quarter four, we're focusing on quarter four, 2022, was 3.7%. So they, they, it was going to be up, Right. 10 sectors are expected to report lower earnings today compared to September 30th due to the downward revisions to the earnings per share estimates. Now, in terms of guidance in the fourth quarter of 2020, 63 companies in the S&P 500 already have issued negative EPS guidance. 34 have issued positive EPS guidance. So it's definitely weighted towards the negative, but it's only a total of 100 companies that are issuing that guidance. But I think more importantly is the discussion here about valuation. That's what I look at a lot. I focus in on, okay, where are we big picture? Now, you can't make daily or short-term decisions this way. You have to look a little bit further out. You have to look at big picture. Step back. You just step back. Step back. All right, where are we? Well, the forward earnings, 12-month base PE on the S&P 500. We can look at various indices right now. Some are a bit uh, properly valued. Some are terribly overvalued. S&P is somewhere in the... Hmm, that doesn't make any sense number. 
the S&P 12-month forward earnings on the P.E. ratio is 17, meaning that uh, 17, which is below the five-year average, by the way, which is about 18.5, but it's right on spot on the 10-year average. But that was during times, if you think about where we were with a declining interest rate environment, with an economy that was growing and there was not a Fed that was trying to deliberately slow down the economy. And therefore, what you have here is a situation that is a bit upside down where expectations are that companies are going to continue to grow substantially in the future with all of these headwinds that are going on when they're telling you that they're not. But meanwhile, the average investor is like, ah, who the hell cares? Expectations by analysts for 2023 are at um, earnings growth of 5.5%. Even though there's concerns about a possible recession was talked about by facts that analysts still expect, the analysts still expect the S&P to report single-digit earnings growth in calendar year 2023. So that's a 5.5%, okay? Which is, which is below the trailing 10-year average, which was about 8.5%, is also below the estimates of 9.6% that we saw just in June, and again, lower than the 8.2% that we saw in September. But meanwhile, I think that we're probably above levels that we saw in September. So that's pretty weird. I mean, if you think about that, we're lower in growth by three full percentage points on a calendar year basis for 2023, and they're popping the earnings multiple, considering the fact we're at a higher interest rate now than we were then, and the fact that there's a recession. And recessionary price earnings multiples are usually somewhere, I'm going to give you a range, I'll be kind, 12 to 15. 16? So if we're looking at $223 per share, which is where we are right now, the estimate of where we are at this moment, um, so at $223, times 17.1, um, actually it's 233, 233 times 17.1 is, yeah, 4,000 on the S&P 500, you know, within a few points here or there. If we take the fact that we have 233, we multiply it by usual recessionary levels, you're at 3,500, that's at 15. We go in one step further, we go 233, and we say, uh, okay, well, it's going to be 12. You know, you're 2796. Now, is that possible? Oh my God. Uh, you know, what are we gonna do? Let's get crazy. No, that's not the case. The fact is that where we are right now with regard to the current level of forward multiple, 17.1, is probably either too high or might I say the estimates for next year are a little bit lofty. And I don't think anybody really <laughs> Too much disagrees, and that's why this is concern about the first half. Now, getting back to where we are in this discussion about CPI, right? I talked about the CPI issue, and I wanted to talk about what actually happened with this 1,000-point swing in the Dow Jones Industrial Average and this 5%. Well, there was great news. The CPI was up only, only, only 7.1% versus the 7.7 in October. And the core CPI was up only 6% versus 6.3% in October. But as we break this down and I grabbed some information and um, filled it in with some other details from briefing.com, love them, by the way, um, here is some of the information that we found as key components of uh, the internals of the CPI report. So let me just rattle this off to you and 
give you a taste of what's going on. On a month-over-month -month basis, the food index was up half a percent, 0.5%, up still 10.6% year-over-year. Energy index was down 1.6% on a month-over-month, -month, but still up 13.1% year-over-year. Shelter, housing, up 0.6% month-over-month. That's not declining. Maybe not as hot as it was, but not declining. If you annualize that, we're talking about 7.2%. It was up 7.1% year-over-year. Used cars and trucks declined 2.9% month-over-month, which is enormous, by the way. And it's down 3.3% year-over-year. That's interesting. That tells a story right there. The story is, don't panic about things. If you wait a little bit longer, usually you get a better price. Service inflation held steady at 7.2% year-over-year. Excluding medical care services, service inflation increased to 7.6% year-over-year versus 7.5% in October. And excluding rent on shelter, service inflation did moderate to 7.3% from 7.5% in October. But markets were really pleased with this report, at least initially. You know, the future soared in the beginning. There's a kind of a sense that overall inflation is maybe cooling off a little bit, and the Fed should be convinced to slow down the pace of rate hikes. I mean, it's also possible that the terminal rate, the final rate that we're going to get to is maybe towards the, dare I say, 4.75 to 5% range versus a lot higher that was thought about last month. However, listen, even as we are seeing the inflation trend moderating, by all accounts, it's still elevated. And more importantly on all of this, and I think you know this because we talked about this, and, and hopefully you've in, this is ingrained now in, in this new reality, is simply that prices are not coming down. Rather, they're moving higher at a slower pace. And, and, and it's like a car going 60 miles an hour. You're really speeding down the road uh, in a 40-mile-an-hour uh, zone. Now you're only going 50. It's like, well, you know, you, you're still speeding, but well, you got a lot better. You know, and the projection is that that gets down to the speed limit eventually. Biden came out this week and said, you know, to me, it looks like by the end of 2023, inflation is going to be back to normal. Eh, I'm assuming what he means is normal is 2%. And if that's the case, if we get back to 2% on an inflationary rate moving forward, that means that we're going to continue with the higher prices that have been already uh uh, welded into place times 2%. We're not going backwards. They think we're stupid. They think they could talk about inflation going back to where it is normal. We're going to go back to reality. Everybody's going to be fine. Frankly, I think a lot of investors are pretty damn dumb. They think that if inflation is going to be down at 6%, wow, we're in great shape because the Fed is going to slow down their interest rate hikes. The problem is even if the Fed does slow down their interest rate hikes to only, only, uh, you know, moving forward a number of months, uh, I don't know, three months from now, 50 basis points to maybe uh, six months from now, only 25 basis points, getting up to this terminal rate of 5%. And if in fact inflation gets under that level so that we have a net number that is saying that, well, it's slowing down the economy. Fact is, again, we are only slowing down a big problem. The truck that is speeding at 50 is just as destructive as 60, even though it seems better. The inflation rate 
at 5% is pretty destructive. It's not 9%, but it's still pretty bad. So even as we're seeing this moderate, again, prices are not coming down for a while. Yes, in certain areas, they went uh, into a state of craziness, like the used car market. People got nuts. And it was weird. And now it's coming down dramatically. So where we are right now is a really weird place, to be honest with you, because the impact of this reality needs to be understood. It really, it, the, the whole point of what's happening with, with pricing, when it relates to consumer spending and corporate margins, these two items are going to play an important role, essential role, when it relates to the direction of the economy over the next year. So, you know, while I seem to be in agreement to a degree with this idea of a second half problem, a first half problem, second half maybe, we'll see. Let's take a break for a second. Let's talk about interactive brokers again. I want to really focus now for a moment on financial advisors and ask you if you're looking to add or switch custodians. Maybe you're going independent. Because Interactive Brokers provides lowest cost trading and turnkey custody solutions for all size firms. You could trade globally from a single integrated master account. And if you're an advisor, you know what I'm talking about here. That's very important. There's no ticket charges, no custody fees, no minimums, and no tech platform or reporting fees. Again, if you're an advisor, you know what I'm talking about. Light should be flashing. You should be like, whoa, that's good. Plus, IBKR has no advisory team or prop trading group to compete with you for your clients. So switch to the custody solutions that work for you at IBKR.com slash RIA. Definitely check that out. As I promised at the top here, I wanted to talk about some things for the end of the year. Some, some, some guidelines and areas. Now, I'm, I'm going to start off with a disclaimer. We are not providing in this discussion any kind of tax or legal recommendations, suggestions, advice. That is a major disclaimer right there. You heard it here, right? Okay. You understand that? Yes. Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. With that in mind, I will continue because I want to, I'm going to rattle a lot of things off here. You may have to slow down. I said, take notes at the beginning because I have pages of things that I wrote down that I want to just go through with you. And I'm, I'm going to do it uh, pretty much in one breath here. There's a lot on this because what you want to think about is towards the end of the year, which is only a couple of, couple of weeks from here. Right. And hopefully you did a lot of this beforehand, but the first thing we're going to start talking about is your filing status independence. So if you're married or you're going to be married by the end of the year, you should probably look at comparing the tax liability for yourself and your spouse based on the filing statuses, all of them that are out there and which ones you may want to select. You compare the results when you, um, when you filed jointly and when you filed married separately and determine maybe which one is better for you. And if you um, and several other people uh, are financially supporting someone else, but none of you individually qualifies to claim the individual as a, a dependent, you can consider making an agreement with the other parties to ensure that at least one of you can claim the independent as a dependent. That makes sense. Certain tax benefits can be available for you on that situation. Now, family tax planning. Probably it's a good idea to determine whether you can shift income to family members who are in a lower tax bracket in order to minimize overall taxes. 
However, of course, under these kitty tax rules that were changed back a number of years ago, uh, the unearned income tax, the unearned income of a child in excess of 2300 is taxed at the parent's ta tax rate. So this kitty tax applies to those under the age of 18, those uh, age 18 and earned income doesn't exceed one half of their support, and those 19 to 23 who are full-time students and whose earned income doesn't uh, exceed one half the support. Uh, also, in terms of family tax planning, consider making gifts of up to $16,000 this year per person, federally gift tax-free under the annual gift tax exclusion. So use assets that are probably uh, highly appreciated for optimizing income tax savings. You can also take advantage of tax credits for higher education costs if you're eligible to do so. Uh, things like the American Opportunity, the HOPE credit, the Lifetime Learning credit. So some of these are based on tax year rather than academic year. So just look at that. Um, if you have qualified student loans and meet all necessary requirements, by the way, you may be entitled to take a deduction for the interest you pay during the year, if you paid any during the year. The max amount you can deduct is 2500 Now, in terms of businesses and employees and your business and what's going on with that. So self-employed individuals who are generally use the cash method of accounting. Okay, let's start with that. Most don't use accrual. You can defer income by delaying the billing of clients until next year. Now, if you get the money, it's all over. But if you delay it until next year, at least you have another year and a half to pay for it. And you may be also able to defer a bonus until the following year. So that's something to talk to your CPA with. Using installment sale agreements to spread out any potential capital gains among future taxable profits and periods, you could do that as well. However, the gains on the sale of publicly traded stock cannot be spread out. Uh, business income and expenses. So one of the things you could do is accelerate expenses. So for example, um, maybe like repair work and uh, the purchase of supplies and equipment. In the current year, you could do that to, to focus it on your tax bill, right? You buy it right now. You could also increase your employer's withholding of state and federal tax to help you avoid exposure to estimated tax underpayment penalties. You should have done that throughout the year. You really shouldn't have a problem with that. Pay last quarter's taxes before December 31st rather than waiting until January 15th, right? That's uh, some business stuff. In certain circumstances and instances, maybe it could be possible uh, for the full cost of last-minute purchase of equipment to be deducted under what's called a Section 179 deduction where you can take the full deduction entirely, like right now. Uh, so you buy, I don't know, you buy yourself uh, a major, uh, you know, a new pr a computer and printer, you can just whack it in the year and take first year depreciation deductions entirely. And generally you're able to make a contribution to your employer retirement plan at any time up uh, to the end of the year. So you need to make sure you, you and your, well, you tell your employees, but you have maximized your 401k and any other plans that you have. In terms of financial instruments, pay attention to the capital tax rate, the capital gains tax rate for individuals and try to sell only assets held for more than 12 months. You get a much lower rate, right? That's something. That's if there's a gain. Now, consider selling stock if you have capital losses. That's what we talked about before. The idea that a lot of people are going to be taking advantage of end of year where they could sell off stocks to offset capital gain income. Right? And if you plan to sell your investments this year, consider selling the investments that produce the smallest gain. And that's in totality. When you look at both the combination of the gains and the losses, you want to offset and there's long-term, short-term, so you got to play around with that. But again, I, you can't wait till the end of the year, after the end of the year. You can't wait till January 3rd. Hey, you know what? I'm going to call my accountant, and I'm going to ask him 
is it a good idea to do this? By then, it's too late. It's too late. Here's some more tips. Again, going through these very quickly. Regarding your personal residence, you can make early January mortgage payments. In other words, the payment that's due no later than January 15th of next year in December so that you can deduct the accrued interest for the current year that is paid in the current year. So you can advance pay and get that benefit. If you want to sell your principal residence, we only got two weeks if that's going to be the case, so okay. Make sure you qualify to exclude all or part of the capital gains from the sale from federal income tax. So if you meet the requirements, you can exclude up to $250,000 or $500,000 for a married couple filed jointly. So $250,000 single, $500,000 married couple filing jointly. Generally, you could exclude the gain only if you use the home as your principal residence, which makes sense, right? You have to be there also for two years at the last five. That's something else. Now, also, you can generally use the exemption only once every two years. However, even if you don't meet these tests, you may still be able to qualify for reduced exclusion if you meet the relevant conditions. So that there's a lot of opportunity there not to worry if you sell a house uh, and take only a certain amount of gain. Consider structuring the sale of investment property as an installment sale in order for uh, you to defer gains for later years. Okay? However, again... Uh, not about publicly traded stock. And finally, maximize the tax benefits you derive from your second home, if you have, by modifying your personal use of the property in accordance with applicable tax guidelines. Now, let me just stop again and just say something. We're glossing quickly, moving through these. So there's a lot of details that may be missing, but what I'm trying to do is going through a almost a, a very quick brainstorming session to see that maybe, oh, that, oh, yeah, something I could, that's good for me. And then go to your CPA quickly by the end of the year and see if it is relevant and if it works for you. So you don't need to memorize all the things that I'm saying because, again, we're just scratching the surface with some of the things that we're talking about. What I want you to do is just utilize this as an idea generation uh, moment so that you can then go and find out more if it is applicable to you. So we talked about employees and business income, financial investments, personal residence and other real estate. How about the all-important retirement contribution area? Because you can make the maximum deductible contributions to your IRA uh, up until April 15th, technically. But I want you to try to avoid premature IRA payouts to avoid the 10% early withdrawal penalty. Definitely don't do that unless you meet some exemption, like you're over 59 and a half, et cetera. But maybe try to continue to um, have those monies deferred until you have to take it at age 72. So make sure to contribute the full amount, not only to your IRA if you don't have the availability of a pension plan, but also if you're married to a spousal IRA. So in 2022, you can deduct up to $6,000 to your traditional IRA and $6,000 to your spouse's IRA. Now I'm talking about a spousal IRA, not an individual IRA if your spouse is also working because they can do that. But also you can be able to potentially uh, even add more, up to $1,000 if you're at least the age of 60 for a catch-up provision. And contributions to an IRA can generally be made at any time up to the due date for filing a given year's tax return. So usually it's April 15th. Um, now you can also make tax-deductible contributions to a Roth IRA. That's interesting. Uh, the same dollar limit applies to all contributions to your traditional and Roth IRA combined. So if you have 3000 in your 
individual deductible IRA could maximum do three thousand or four thousand if you're using your catch-up provision, because that would total seven thousand. Now, maybe if you want, you're thinking about this, you need to do this by the end of the year. Set up a retirement plan for yourself, especially if you're a self-employed taxpayer, small company with a few employees, um, you know, even larger. But the point is, you can put a whole heck of a lot of money away for yourself compared to what you did before. So that's a really important issue there. So you can set up an IRA for each of your children also who have earned income. And I want you to look at minimizing the income tax on Social Security benefits by lowering your income below the applicable threshold. This is something that everybody on, on Social Security should be looking at. You should be considering the idea that, uh, you know, what is that level? What is the amount that I have to keep it under, possibly, if you can, of earned income in order to keep the taxation of my Social Security to a minimum? Because yes, after you earn a certain amount, it is taxable. Now, a couple other points here we can talk about. Um, I think it's, it's first of all, a wonderful thing. I think it's a win-win. You get the opportunity to help out others while helping out your own financial situation at the same time. And that, my friends, is what we call charitable donations. Now, you know me. We talked about this before, especially on DH Unplugged. I do a lot of charitable functions. We give a lot to charity, um, do a lot of work in the world of charity. My wife especially in that area. Um, and I, I can't tell you how, how rewarding it is to get involved. And somebody at dinner the other night asked me, you know, what does it mean? They want me to get involved. He said, I don't have the time. How could I do it? They want to meet, you know, they, they, what do they do? They're going to do things on a Monday through Friday and meetings. I said, look, this is what a charity means when they say we want you to get involved. It's all about giving. Now, whether it's time, experience, expertise, or money, it doesn't matter. If you cannot provide the expertise or the time, if you give money, that brings in enough money over time to hire the people with the expertise and the time in order to provide for whatever the particular charity does, whether it's helping out homeless, it's helping out abused and neglected, it's helping out um, you know animals, whatever it is, whatever the charity does, your money helps. Now, that brings us to discussion of of, of finance, right? Because you can make a charitable donation like cash or even old clothes before the end of the year and you'll get a deduction on your taxes. Now, up to a certain point, of course, because there are some issues there. We'll talk about that. You got to keep all your receipts from the recipient charity, but you can get 100% deductions pretty much for old clothes or old TVs or whatever the value is at the time that you give it. Probably one of the things you could also do that's really kind of cool, maybe too late to set this up, but it could be, use highly appreciated stock stock rather than cash when contributing to charities, which may help you avoid income tax and the buildup uh, of the gain that you had in there. So, for example, let's say you have, I don't know, pick your stock, XYZ stock, love that one, and, uh, you know, you bought it at $10 a share and you bought it for $10,000, now it's worth $100 a share, and so with $100,000, selling that is going to be really painful, $90,000 capital gain, and you're going to pay all sorts of money on that. Okay, fine. So uh, what are we looking at? Well, the alternative is to gift out whatever it is, maybe 50 shares. 
When you do so, you're going to take a deduction for the full value of those shares at the present time of the gift and not pay any of the tax on the appreciation. So you bought it at 10, you sold it or sent it over at 100, you're a hero because you just give $5,000. You get a tax deduction, unbelievable, and you don't pay the gain from the point that it was that you bought it to when you gifted it away. As opposed to if you decide to sell it, then give it to them, you have to pay taxes and then you'll get a tax break. This way you get a double whammy. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so that that's a couple things there. Now, we also have uh, another area called um, adoption and medical expenses. And again, this is not all-encompassing. There are probably some little things you could do here and there as well and probably things that you need to look at. But these are some important key items, areas that you could really focus in on to get some more information on from your CPA, your tax professional, your particular financial planner, um, any of the people that you trust, that you use for advice on your finance, ask them, well, I heard about this, what should I do? So the next one is adoption and medical expense. Adoption and medical expense. Now, you could take advantage of the adoption tax credit for qualified adoption expenses you paid. Now, it has to be done in 2022, right? So in 2022, you could deduct up to $14,890 per eligible child as a tax credit. Remember the difference between a credit and a deduction. A credit is something that comes directly off the tax due. A deduction just comes off the income, basically. Credit is much more powerful. It's a coupon against your taxes. Now, once you're modified adjusted growth gross income or AGI exceeds 223,000 plus or minus um it starts to phase out it's completely eliminated when you're up to 263,000 now the maximum use of itemized medical expenses by bunching such expenses of the same year to the extent as possible uh in order to meet the 7.5% threshold of your AGI so you got to take all your medical expenses look at them and you got to find out what your AGI is. You know, if your AGI is 200000 and you have a 75 that's going to be 15000 um, minimum in order to start deducting it. And remember, there was a, a tremendous amount of um, standard deduction increase over the last several years. So that was something to, to really think about. Um, now, there's a whole list of things just to go back to the charitable side uh, that I want to mention to you. And I'm just going to, I want to headline some of these. So as we're in the uh, season of giving, the season of happiness, the season of cheer and jovialness and giving to thy neighbor, and we talked about this whole idea of charity, I thought we would spend a little bit of time, you know, really discussing this in a, in a little bit more detail. And, you know, I don't know, you may donate for all sorts of reasons we talk about, and philanthropy is, and if it is important to you, you can keep in mind that uh, you get some tax breaks, as we talked about when I listed all the different food for thought items when it came to year-end tax ideas. And you can generally deduct charitable contributions, which reduces your taxable income, um, only if you itemize, of course, on your federal tax return. So it's it's limited to about 60% of your AGI, your adjusted gross income, uh, for cash contributions of a public charity. So that's good. You know, you get a big tax deduction. Otherwise, the limits of 50%, 30%, and 20% of AGI may apply depending on what's going on and what type of property you give and the type of organization that it goes to. And um, there's a lot of different issues there. So if you claim a, a charitable contribution, 
So you need to know that um, cash, check, on other other monetary gift, you should make, of course maintain a record of the canceled check, a bank statement, receipt a letter from the charity, something. Um, and, and that really is for donations of $250 or more because you must substantiate with contemporaneous written acknowledgement from the charity. So that's all important, okay? So um, now the tax, uh, the tax Cuts and Job Act that was passed um, pretty much doubled the standard deduction. We know that. So beginning in um, 2018, and uh, it's going to be indexed through 2025, uh, it's going to be $12,950 for single taxpayers this year for this tax season, 2022, and $25,900 for joint filers. So therefore, the result was a dramatic reduction in the number of taxpayers who itemize. And now that means that that's a dramatic reduction in who could probably or who would want to utilize a charitable deduction for their tax benefit. So remember that also that goes to the fact of what's going on with charities, that they have less money from people because it's just some of the advantages have been taken out, but still important. Uh, some of the things you could do, for example, to donate to charity, we're just going to whip through these really quickly, is utilize a donor-advised fund, which is a way to contribute um, and, and lump together a lot of contributions into um, a big charitable deduction for a current year, but you don't know what you want to do with it. So you can put money into the charitable uh, and donor-advised fund and then um, open it up, call it a DAF, and, and you can itemize it and then um, gift it away over time. Uh, you could donate from your IRA. Here's something a lot of people don't know. If you have an IRA and you're, you're 72 or older, actually, I think this year it's even stayed at 70 and a half for some reason. But you can give to charity without itemizing and still get a tax break through a qualified charitable contribution. That's kind of cool. So um, a qualified charitable contribution must be taxable distribution from an IRA, generally the distributions. Um, they're excluded from income tax and won't affect your tax obligation. Uh, once you reach actually age 72, you could satisfy that from your RMD. That's pretty cool, right? So there you go. You have to make it directly to um, the trustee to um, um, the, the from the trustee to the qualified public charity. You could do uh, something called a charitable trust, which is a little bit more. You have to go to your attorney and deal with that whole issue and deal with you know some of the paperwork there. But with the charitable trust, same thing, kind of lump some things together. You could donate money, securities, property, other assets into this trust. You designate a beneficiary, even yourself, by the way, to receive the income. And upon your death or the death of a surviving spouse, the assets will um, um, go to the charity. So that's kind of cool, right? Um, an asset placed in something called, an, a, there's a charitable lead trust, there's a charitable annuity trust. There's all these different types of trusts that are out there. Uh, they can pay income to the designated beneficiary for the charitable lead trust until the trust ends, typically upon your death. The remaining assets would then be returned to your heirs. So the strategy may help reduce estate and gift taxes on appreciated assets that go to your heirs. So there's all sorts of different ways to do this. So bottom line in all of this is that, you know, you want to make sure that you are doing your best to help out others, help yourself at the same time, win-win, win situation there when it comes to charitable giving. And if it's something that you haven't thought about before, man, there are a lot of people that have a lot of need. And this is something that you could do, even if you do something small even something small, even if it doesn't help you out tax-wise. May I tell you, there's nothing better than helping out someone and giving them a little bit of a leg up in life, especially if you have it to do so. You never know when it's going to come around back to you. You know, pay it forward, you never know. 
I will share this with you that one of the things you want to do is make sure the charity that you're giving to is a quality charity. Some charities spend too much on administration and, and, and the overall um, income of their presidents and their CEOs and their chairmen and all that. There's a lot of what we call watchdogs out there, such as there's one called charitynavigator.org or guidestar.org. That's a good one. Um, they rate and they review the nonprofits and they do it from an arm's length standpoint. And um, because the, the organizations will provide them with the, the mission, uh, financial status. You can see a lot of different things here. Uh, the amount of money that actually goes on a percentage basis to the charity from every dime that you write them. And, um, you know, you just want to watch that and be careful about that and get to the right place. So you want to take advantage of, um, you know, all these opportunities that you have available to you, whether it's, you know, a, a, um, a donor's advised uh, fund, uh, watch for the fees in there. You know, obviously you want to be careful about that um, because there is investing in there. And what you're doing, of course, um, you need to be careful about those usually provided by companies like a Fidelity, a Vanguard, they they have those. Or you, you could set one up, I guess, in a weird way by yourself, but that would be more of a charitable trust, I suppose. Anyway, it is the season for gifts and for all that. Hanukkah is right around the corner. Christmas is coming up. Kwanzaa, all of the things, the new year. Listen, let's make this a time that we think very clearly about what it is towards the end of the year that we want to accomplish and how we can accomplish it, utilizing all these different metrics and ways of actually going about being smart about what we do. And insofar as the opportunities that are available to us in the tax code, why not? Why not? Let's get it done. If we can help out others at the same time, let's do it. That's all I got for this week. You probably want to uh, play that back slowly. Hopefully you got some notes out of that. You have some information about planning for year end. Next week we come back. We got lots more to talk about as we enter in the end of the year. Talk about the, the results of what went on um, this week with between the Fed and the CPI and how markets liked and hated and hated and liked and all the things that went on. And, and my, my thesis for the end of the year on how the potential is that we're going to see a substantial amount of uh, potential um, overhead resistance towards the end of the year. Uh, maybe some concern in the beginning of, of the year and then uh, first half, maybe January effect there as well. But bottom line, all of this is keep cool heads. Make sure that you have a plan in place. That's what we talk about all the time here. Listen, thank you so much for joining me. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Andrew Horowitz. Go over there right now. Make sure you follow me on Twitter. Go over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Check out what's going on, all the different ways that we can help you from an investment and financial standpoint to get you towards what we know and what we call financial independence, financial security. That place in time in the future, or maybe even now, that you're comfortable and not worried all the time about all of this. Wouldn't that be nice? Thanks for joining me. I'll see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and 
conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 